Amen. Thank you. Tonight we read from Hebrews 11, uh, cha- uh, yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, sorry, verses 17 to 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. There's a question in my head when I think of these passages that I think casts a bit of a net over all of the world as we look out from the walls of our churches And it's this, what is faith? We who have maybe grown up in church or been around Sunday school most of our lives, we're taught from a very young age what faith is and what it is not, what it looks like and what it doesn't look like, what it should propel you to do and what it should change in your heart. But I think the world also has this burning question. That we, need to treat, that we need to try to figure out, to show them, to teach the world what faith is, what it looks like. And I think Hebrews 11 talks a little bit about it. I guess no matter what background you're brought up in, no matter where you're from, no matter which doctrine it is that you follow from a young age, we all have faith in something. For us, Bible-believing Christians who are here on a Sunday evening, we believe that the Word of God is that which makes its promises true and its words unfailing. But what exactly is faith? What's the substance of it? What is it made of? Is it purely intellectual? Is it something that you can also feel and experience? Is it something that you have learned? We live in a free world in the West, thankfully, where we get to express our own religious beliefs. And you're invited to live out whatever faith it is you have. Again, for Christians, that may compel them to be part of a local church, to extend the gospel to the far-reaching corners of the earth, or to give earnestly of their time and efforts to God. For other religions, though, like Mormons, it may result in a year-long mission trip at a young age to convince them and others of the same faith. For a Muslim, it results in a series of events in a calendar year where they fast and pray to their God. For those who exclude the existence of God altogether, it often results in a self-serving worship, at times over material objects, to convince themselves that they are on the right path and doing well, that they can have faith in themselves And all they have to do is believe that. It's clear that we're all looking for a way to understand that thing that's inside of us that causes us to have hope in what is unseen and expectant of something greater than ourselves. And this isn't a new idea. Faith has been around for about as long as human history has been recorded. There's something to be said about the idea that faith totally encapsulates all of us in our everyday lives even. And if you were to ask my personal opinion, I think built into the fabric of who we are is this little God-shaped hole 
It can only be filled by the one true God who himself gives the gift of faith. But when that hasn't happened, we fill it with everything else that we can get our hands on. So what is faith? Thankfully, there is an answer. Found in the one place that you could expect to find an answer about such a question. 16 verses earlier than what we've just read, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this. If you've got your Bible open, you can follow with it. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That's faith. Great. At the end of chapter 10, the author says, and this is what prompts a further instruction on what faith is. He says, we belong to those who have faith and are saved. In a world and time at this point where people were asking the question, what must I do to be saved? Here we have an incredibly bold statement that is being reiterated from the gospels. If you remember, you must have faith to be saved. Try to imagine this as a bit of a conversation between the person who wrote the letter and those receiving the letter. It goes like this, chapter 10, verse 39. Those who have faith are saved. You can see how he preempts the next question, like a little child asking a very simple but obvious question. Well, you say that, but what exactly is faith then? And then he says 11, verse 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And I have a six-month-old daughter, and she's not quite at this point, but I also have two nieces and two nephews who are always asking the same questions over and over again. But why? But why? But why? But why? And this is the same question that's unfolding right before us. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Well, how do you know? Because look at history. And he begins to unpack a number of different stories that are well known to these people. Stories of the ancients of the nation of Israel. All in an attempt to give a bit of a formula on what faith is and how it should be lived out to those who wrestle with such a question. What a sigh of relief for us. The writer carries us through a journey of understanding what it looks like to live this incredible life of faith starting with Abel, and then Enoch, and then Noah, and then lastly, Abraham, where we'll spend most of our time focusing on verse 17 to 19. To do so, we'll need to dive into Genesis 22, so you might want to have your finger on the pulse there too. As we do that, hopefully you'll see three main things that pop out of this text, three main things that will help us understand why these people were called faithful to God. Because it's an incredibly bold statement to claim. Firstly, you'll see the promise. Secondly, you'll see the test. And then thirdly, you'll see the fulfillment. Now, it would be a fair enough question to ask the following based on what I've tried to explain what exactly is it that these people had faith in? Faith, according to the Bible, is found in the trusting of God's promises. Scripture, in essence, is a long story about promises God has made to his people and the unfolding of their fulfillment. None are more obvious to talk about than where we are tonight, Abraham. So if you're at verse 17... 
the 19. Firstly, the first thing you'll see in the, in the narrative is this, the promise. To see the story of Hebrews 11, 17, it's talking about you need to flip back to Genesis 22, 1 to 18. And if you do, you'll find a story about Abraham who had a son that was a direct result of a promise that God had made to him. And God tested his obedience. He asked him to take his one and only son. Now, for the scholars in the room, you might be going, well, he wasn't his only son. He was the one true son of the promise. So when the text is relaying that, that's what it means. It was the one true son of the promise that God had made to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him to the Lord on an altar. Now, if we held up a second, what you'll see is it's really important not to skip over this part. Our tendency is to see this as a story that we've heard in Sunday school and that we know growing up and perhaps we even read once a year as we go through our Bible. But we don't zoom in at all at the gravity of what's going on here. We don't take a second to think God has promised something incredible to Abraham that he would have a son, Genesis 17, and that promise that was through his one true son that he would be the father of many nations and that his descendants would be greater than the stars in the sky. Sounds incredible. But skip forward to what's going on now. The same God that gave him the incredible promise is literally telling him to kill his son. Now, for a simple brain like mine, that would surely mean that the promise of God has completely gone. That it's not going to be fulfilled. Surely, that would mean that the promise is done away with. Or that maybe Abraham was thinking he was just wrong. And could you imagine how Abraham must have felt? Those three days marching up the mountain, the gut-wrenching feeling, was I wrong about the promise of God? I can't believe I have to do this. But no, Abraham, thankfully, is a good example and not like me. As the word tells us, Hebrews eleven eighteen, that because Abraham had such faith in God's ability to fulfill his promise, his assumption that, was God, that God would do the most miraculous thing that he has done, raise someone from the dead. That was just a casual thought for Abraham. And I don't know about you, but when I don't fully see the promise of God in my life, I'm sorry to admit that my first instinct isn't that God will casually do the most miraculous supernatural thing that any of us will probably ever see with our own two eyes. So what is Abraham commanded for in Hebrews eleven seventeen? 17? What's for his faith? Not just his ability to do what God asked him to do in the midst of awful circumstances, but his faith. That the promise of God would come true in his life. And what that meant for Abraham was that nothing else around him mattered. The circumstances didn't come into play. The promise of God was still alive and well. Whatever you say, I will do, was Abraham's utterance. Now here are some of the promises that God has made to Abraham up to this point in the story. He promises four things, comes in four parts. 
land for his descendants, many descendants, blessings for his descendants, and blessings through him for all nations. Now, when I hear those four parts of the promise, my mind flips to two different things. Firstly, in the fleshly sense, it says those promises are pretty vague to kill your own child over, right? To do something so incredibly difficult. But secondly, as I look at the story from a bird's eye view that hopefully you'll see tonight, you see the foreshadowing of the person of Christ, the one and only son, the same language, the sacrifice. God will provide a sacrifice that we see later in the story. The three-day ascension to the mountain. And while we look at the promises God made to Abraham, where they seem to be pitted against God's commands, we also see the Messiah who was to come. The one who for all people would become a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And more so we see the promise of God that the promise that God made through the whole world and through the, old of, uh, through the whole of the Old Testament and the promise that he made through his son Jesus that he would make a way for man to be fully reconciled. That, ladies and gentlemen, tonight is the promise of God on our lives. I hope that you know it. God has vowed through his one and only son to atone for the sins of those who would believe in him so that they may have eternal life with him. How blessed are we to know the working out of this promise? Because when we look at Abraham, he had no idea what was about to happen. He had faith and he trusted, but he had no idea how it unfolded. 21 times in Hebrews 11, if my maths is right, it talks about faith. And we see, based on the narrative in Genesis 22, faith is bound by the promise of God. Without the promise of God, it is impossible to have faith because, as Hebrews 11 once says, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. But seemingly, it doesn't stop there. We can scan over the story of Abraham and Genesis. We see a bit of a formula taking place that we then see throughout the Old Testament and when we get to the New Testament, from the Father of Israel to the apostles of Jesus Christ. Second thing you'll see is that there is often a test of faith. So there is the promise of faith, the incredible good news that God is going to do something in your life, the incredibly good news that Abraham was going to be the father of many descendants and that all would be blessed through the one true son of the promise, but then comes the obvious, the test. And I wonder if you're like me too, and you're not like Abraham, and at times of difficulty when the boat gets rocked and things begin to tipple overboard, we frantically run around trying to figure out how we may keep the promise of God in our lives, but also try to fix the crisis that's going on. You see how different that looks when we look at the story of those who have been called people of faith, heroes of the faith. 
if I was Abraham, I would have been pleading with God, and he did, but I would have been pleading much more, not knowing how this promise was going to unfold. But God, you said that this wouldn't happen. You promised through this one child that all of this stuff was going to happen. If I kill him, he goes and doesn't come back. But no, Abraham understands what's going on. God can do anything. I wonder in the test of faith that we experience in our daily lives, when the massive crisis lands at our front door, when the phone call comes through, do we have the same response? Do we trust in a holy God to fulfill his promises in our lives? Or do we assume that we need to fix it and then go back to God and say thanks when the fixing is done? Abraham's promise is found to be different than ours as we look through the lenses of the New Testament. We see our promise shining through the faded lines of the Old Testament text. The promise that we looked at in point number one, the promise is broad because anyone may avail of it, but yet it's so personal to you, each and every person that sits here tonight. The obvious John 3.16, that you may be saved through faith, through belief in a holy God. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's exactly what brought us to this point in the text. And as we zoom out of the context of Abraham and out of the Old Testament, I have to tell you, your faith will be tested. And you know that. All of our faith will be tested. I often have these conversations with young people about their testing of their faith And I'll say this, do you ever dread the test in school that you're not prepared for? Because that was me at school. I was an awful student, and thankfully IBC continued to let me study there. But at school, the teacher would often drop in and say, okay, everyone's ready for the maths test? And I would go, I thought this was English. We don't know why we're tested. Well, we know why we're tested in school, to prove your ability to do what you've been taught. It's not exactly the same as being tested in faith. It's not the same way Abraham was tested. So why does God test Abraham and so many others in the New Testament? Why does Jesus test his disciples? Why does Jesus be tested by Satan? First Peter says this. These have come, these tests, these trials, these tribulations, in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, these have come that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold may result in praise. If there was ever a reason why we are tested, it is that God desires praise. God desires the heart of Abraham So he took the one thing that he knew that he had given him, that he was holding on hope to, the promise of this success, these incredible descendants, the promise of the one true son. And he tested him by threatening to take it away. I don't know what the test is in your life, but I want to tell you that first Peter will be of encouragement to you to know that you will be tested and that it's not by happen chance. And it's not by mistake, 
And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because he's a jealous God who desires praise always. As one author puts it, the test of our Christian devotion always involves this, that we love not so much the gifts, but the gift giver above all else. The Old Testament scriptures tell us that devotion to the Lord is at the center of the law, Deuteronomy 6, 5. So what are we learning here tonight? God will test you because it often results in praise and worship of a holy God. So Brian, will God ask me to take my child to the top of the cave hill? I sincerely hope not, and I would doubt it. But here are some things that God may ask you to do that we know because it's a command that's given in Scripture to all of us. Matthew 16, lay down your life, pick up your cross, follow me. That is a challenge and a test for each and every one of us. Obey my commands if you love me. These things are a test, not because God himself would find it difficult to do them, but because our hearts are naturally pulling away from God. Our desire is always to live our own lives the way that we want to, the way that satisfies us. Our love of self causes us to turn away from God's commands and eventually convince everyone that it's a noble thing to strive and serve yourself and put yourself first. My personal conviction is this, that God continues to use this story and these points as a way to show our faulty thinking. We always assume that because of our human nature, that the order of events on display is something like this. If I show my faith in action, then I'll learn the trust of God. I'll learn to trust in God who will give to me and fulfill the promise. I think that's how we've taught ourselves the way the promise of God actually works. But in reality, it's the reverse order. As we've seen in the text, God has given us the promise that will always be fulfilled in his timing and way. Abraham knew that. Having this promise in our hearts and in our heads will cause us to trust a holy God no matter what else is going on around us. And as a byproduct, our faith will and should become action. As First Peter puts it, our trust in God's ability to fulfill the promise he makes to us will result in us having faith, something that Abraham seemed to have in abundance. My prayer tonight is that you do too. So we have seen the promise, we've seen the test, but lastly and thankfully we come to the incredible fulfillment of God's promises. Maybe after seeing the tests that take place in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and considering it in your own life, you might have the same question that I do. Why would I want to go through those tests? That We can't really talk about being tested without talking about that which has been fulfilled and that which is still to be done because that's why we continue to do something. 
What is the result of showing the proven genuineness of your faith? Why did Abraham go all the way to the mountain to sacrifice his son? Why did Daniel endure persecution? Here's why in a nutshell. The foresight of the fulfillment of God's promise should and will change your heart and cause it to turn towards God. That is what the promise of God does and has always done. That is why people continue to get up behind pulpits all over the world and tell the same promise every Sunday that Christ is returning because he said that he was. Because it will fill us with hope that this promise will someday come true and that all of it hasn't been lies and the tests that we go through in our lives, that they were just a blip. Abraham was promised that he would have many descendants and through him every nation would find blessing. And while he knew that God would fulfill this promise, he didn't see it come to life in his own time. But yet he fully trusted that God's promise would never fail. And as we back off for these last few moments from the context of Genesis 22, and into Hebrews 11 again, we find that the author had the same view of God's promises as he encourages the reader to live by faith in the Lord. And lastly, as we zoom out of Hebrews 11 and you look at your own life, I ask you this question. Are you someone who is fully trusting in the promise of God on your life? Are you someone that wakes daily knowing that no matter what happens, God will continue to provide a way? Are you someone who believes the truth that God did provide the ultimate sacrifice? The final promise that God has made to his people is this, the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus will be saved from the wrath and judgment of God upon his return. That all of us who are dead in our sin may find a way to be reconciled. Not through the sacrifice of our one and only sons, but through his only begotten son. I want to tell you that tonight, this promise has been fulfilled. Christ has paid it all and we are given the incredible fulfillment. We get to live by faith in this truth and I pray that tonight you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your people who gather to hear it and we give you thanks for the incredible truths that are in this. Lord, we look to people like Abraham tonight, heroes of the faith as they're considered, and we pray that we may glean something from them. Lord, would we have faith in the promises that you have given us in your word? We thank you that we have this word, that the promises continue to be tested and continue to be true. And so, Lord, we look to you and we pray that you sustain us 
in these truths. Lord, we thank you for this last song that we'll sing. May it ring true in our hearts as we leave this place tonight. In all of these things, we look to Jesus. Amen. Amen.